Namaste. Welcome to Call and Response Podcasts with Krishnadas, where he shares meaningful stories of his life on the path of his Guru Maharaji and integrating spiritual practice into our everyday lives. Call and Response Podcasts is an offering of the Kirtanwala Foundation. The foundation is dedicated to spreading the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba, a great spiritual teacher of India. If you are interested in supporting this podcast and the work of the foundation, please visit kirtanwalafoundation.org K-I-R-T-A-N-W-A-L-L-A-H foundation.org So practice, you got to do practice, I'm sorry, you just have to. With our eyes open and our hearts open. But through a practice, you're, you're, you get used to coming back from being gone. It's more like an ability to let go. Lama Suryadas is one of the foremost Western Buddhist meditation teachers and scholars. The Dalai Lama affectionately calls him the American Lama. He has spent over 45 years studying Zen, Vipassana, Yoga, and is an authorized Lama in the Tibetan Buddhist order. He has studied with many of the great old masters of Asia, among them some of the Dalai Lama's own teachers. He is also a leading spokesperson for Buddhism and contemporary spirituality, a translator, poet, meditation master, chant master, and spiritual activist. Lama Suryadas is the author of the international best-selling book, Awakening the Buddha Within. In 1991, he established the Dzogchen Foundation and today teaches and lectures around the world, conducting dozens of meditation retreats and workshops. Find out about his blog posts, podcasts, published books, and social media channels on his website, surya.org, S-U-R-Y-A dot org. Talking, shouting at Krishnas, Padmash. Up, ah, ciao. Surdas. I'm going to call you Surdas from okay. now on. I like that. That was Maharaji's name for you, yeah. wasn't it? Surdas. That's amazing, huh? Because you're a poet. You're a poet, and he, he knew it. Maharaji called him Surdas? Yeah, mm-hmm. but nobody knew who Surdas was. So, so it's just, the, oh, Surya, Surya Das that came out. Oh. We didn't know Surdas yeah. at the time. Surdas, the blind, the blind poet, devotee of baby Krishna. Baby Krishna, yeah. And, you know, they say that devotion to baby Krishna is the most complete uh, because it's, there's no, it's completely pure with the baby, you know. It's, it's, there's no interpersonal. There's no interpersonal. There's no, there's no anything. There's no yeah. storyline. It's right. just that love. And Surdas, who was blind, used to yeah. see the Leelas. Right. And just describe them. Well, I have a poster of him. You know, it's the famous poster of him. Like yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And the baby Krishna is like in front of him looking up at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just like that. Amazing. So just to start off, um, my question is this. You know, uh, you, you did many, many years of intense practice. And one of the practices in the Nundra, in the, the, the preliminary practices, is the 100,000 repetitions of the Mani Mantra. Mm-hmm. That, and you did that, right? Well, there's more than that. Hundreds more than of thousands that. of different mantras. Yeah. The purification mantra and the guru yoga mantras and other things. Mm, all of it in, in that yeah. practice while yeah. you were doing it. In Nundro. Uh-huh, Nundro. Foundation practices of Adriana Buddhism. I, I'm interested personally on... I've never done that kind of personal intense mantra practice i mean so so i mean i've done a lot but not that kind of uh, formal uh, then half your life is wasted yes that's true really nice i've already wasted more than half my the life other half st- i'm hoping to too. waste this next yes. half no but i you often talk about taking the name and the name of god and repeating the names yeah and how that what kind of practice that is and you know whether you use words like japa yoga, mm-hmm. or mantra yoga, mm-hmm. what we call mantrayana and other things. But um, you do the name, so if you were counting, you'd probably, you know, you do you know, hundred thousands of Ram Nam or Hare Krishna. So, Especially but, Ram Nam, you do a lot, hundreds of thousands of. Yeah. But there's really no need to count. That's just a way of counting. You can do Nundro, these foundation practices, by number, which is easy, like saying 21 Hail Marys, and then you're done. Yeah. Or you can do it by time. 
uh-huh. like a one-month retreat or a three-month retreat, and then you move on to the next practice that you do by time. Right. What you can do by the third thing, which is the hardest, so we avoid that, is you do it by getting the signs of accomplishment. Oh, right. So, yeah. you know, numbers yeah. is better. You can finish those <laughs> and move on. You can go, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're allowed to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. no signs, no <laughs> dreams, go back to square one, start again. Oh, oh God, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. But I don't know if you want to answer this, um, but it's more of a personal question, but you can answer it in a general way if you like. No, but since we're alone here and what happens here stays here in our podcast, I'm going to answer you. Yeah, no, what I'm thinking is so, how did you, what was your, what were you experiencing on the very relative level as you were doing these intense mantra practices and other practices as, as you were going through this transformation? Did, let me put it, did you feel it was a transformational practice for you? Yeah, sure. You know, practices go up and down like your life journey. Yeah. So you have your, you know, ups and downs and good days and bad days or concentrated days or distracted days or sick days. And, you know, but over time, like from doing long retreats or just year by year daily practice, yeah. you get sort of... Um, in the best case, uh, better at it or skilled at it, or you learn the craft, and then comes the art and the freedom and the creativity. Um, you, you know, you uh, master the skill. Yeah. You um, progress on the path. I mean, these words are used. Yeah. They're yeah. hard to define, but yeah. so th- it's definitely transformative. Uh huh. And it's also, you know, first there's purification, mantras and things like that, and then there's concentration mantras and then there's um, loving kindness and compassion, forgiveness, mantras, mm-hmm. including self-compassion and self-love, as well as others. Right. And then there's wisdom mantras, and then there's like uh, power or self-empowering self-empower- yourself mantras. Mm-hmm. And then there's cutting through obstacle mantras. And then there's long mantras, like hundred syllable mantra of purification, of Vajrasattva, thousand syllable mantra, which really we call it Dharani in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. Like the Hanuman Chalisa is almost a long mantra. I know it's well. A, it is. My heart said it was. Forty yeah. verses with yeah. four lines in each, or whatever. Yeah. Forty praises the Lord Hanuman, right? Yeah. So that would be a dharani in Buddhism, like that. It would have you know a thousand line mantra. Dharani, yeah. And yeah. with stanzas, perhaps, but it mm-hmm. would be a dharani because it goes around and around. That's what dharani means. So the mantra goes around and around, like your breath goes around and around, like mm-hmm. your mind goes around and around. Yeah. And so being present, you get more being where you are rather than spinning around in the big wheel of samsara like a a chicken without a head going around the rounds of rebirth or your mind imagining many things, you get more and more just around here and around here and more centered, like centering a pot on a spinning wheel when you're building a Mm -hmm. pottery shed. And the more it spins and the more you center it, the better beautiful it rises. Otherwise, the mud flies all over the walls. So you can also turn the mantra around in your heart in the visualization, which Mm -hmm. is common to Hindu and Buddhist yogis Mm -hmm. and Tantra Mm -hmm. from the ancient cities of India. Uh So the outer visualization is one thing, but the uh, the outer mantra with your breath and your sound and your tongue and Mm -hmm. your vocal cords is Mm -hmm. the outer mantra, but the inner mantra is visualizing the mantra in your heart chakra or whatever chakra you're working on, Mm. like on the Mm -hmm. the six-petaled lotus of your heart would have one of the six syllables, Omani, Pebby, of compassion on them. And by spinning it in your mind, mm-hmm. it concentrates you and it sheds light and bliss and permeates and radiates outward. And you breathe it out to all beings and you absorb it in to your heart. And then you're doing sort of simultaneous pulsing, mm-hmm. not just sequentially breathing out and in, but pulsing like from the heart, like subtle energy prana. Right. And the mantra's turning and light mm-hmm. and bliss. And then and an even deeper level, the secret mantra is the, the natural flow of awareness. Right. You could call it going around and around, but not going in circles. Kinsey right. Rinpoche called it the wheel of luminosity mm-hmm. that turns day and night. Mm. That's like your innate mantra or a sacred um, sound mm-hmm. or inner sound mm. without auditory vibrations. Mm-hmm. But awareness at its subtlest level, like light, moves and has vibrations, mm-hmm. not sound, mm-hmm. but light. So it's not like getting lost or circling around. Yeah, it's sure. samsara. It's just, it is the wheel of luminosity. It turns day and night. It's just the constant flow of awareness or the great Tao. 
Mm. So then that's, you get to a stage beyond practice where you don't, so some stories of great lama siddhas where they, after doing millions of mantras and counting them and all the practices, they throw their mala on the altar or even in the forest and they, they leave the community and just walk about, mm -hmm. just become one with the nature. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because the wheel of luminosity is turning day and night, so they don't have to go to church on Sunday because yeah. every day is the whole day. Every day is Sunday, yeah. And yeah. the sun is the wheel of luminosity that turns day and night. It never sets. Chogim Trung Prabhupada called it the great eastern sun. It's in many of his books and uh, poems, which means the sun of awareness that's always rising. Yeah. Not that it comes up in the morning and sets at night. Mm. Even while we're asleep, you can be awake in lucid dreaming. So awareness is there. Mm. Even though you might not be conscious, you might be semi-conscious or unconscious, but you can lucid dream and know you're dreaming mm -hmm. and still be asleep. Mm -hmm. So this luminosity turns day and night. So that's like the innermost and innermost level of mantra. Uh -huh. Maybe even more deep than that, you could say it's just oneness is the ultimate mantra, like Om, mm -hmm. which is a mantra but isn't. It's really a seed syllable. Right. It's a seed, and in its potential has all sounds and mantras. Mm -hmm. Right. But, so the yeah. mantra Om is like an example of a, a seed syllable. Yeah. A seed is fertile if it's put in the hot, sort of blind, unknowing, but fertile earth. Right. And then anything can spring from it. So I felt it was very transformative. And also, in Tantra, sometimes you spin the mantra right uh, left uh, clockwise around your heart center if you're doing a male deity yoga mm -hmm. sometimes you spin it counterclockwise if you're doing a female deity yoga like uh -huh. Kara or Vajrayogini or uh -huh. um, these kind of uh, female uh, Buddhas and this is about feminine and masculine energy yeah not just masculine and female not just male and female gender yeah yeah gender male and female but energy Energy. Masculine and feminine, like yin and yang, or lunar mm -hmm. and solar. So sometimes we are practicing visualizing ourselves as a dakini and praying to the guru or guru Rinpoche or the higher power for blessings and then merging like as lovers. Mm -hmm. So as a guy, doing that seemed a little fabricated to me at first yeah. over the years. But then by spinning the mantra the other way, it was almost like going against the current Sitting there in my meditation seat, I felt like there was resistance. It was like, uh -huh. I'm used to going the other way, uh -huh. clockwise. All but right. imagining the visualized mantra of your heart chakra pedal spinning counterclockwise, I felt like my feminineness of being and embracing and receiving, mm -hmm. rather than my masculineness of driving and uh -huh. erect or creating a tower of enlightenment. Right. I got wow. more into the womb of being. Mm. So... You think it's fabricated, but what you actually find out as you get to the substratum where things are being f taking form and being created, yeah, by let's say your mind, how you interpret it, yeah, by your subjectivity, mm -hmm. so you start to see how you can recondition and decondition that by move visualizing the energy moving the other way, and then it starts to move the other way. I feel like it opened up my um, right side of my brain that is a more feminine energy, intuitive mm -hmm. being, uh -huh. rather than the left side, rational side. Huh. So these mantras and you know, chakras and channels yeah. go together. Wow. And it's a combined body and soul, heart and mind, energy and psyche kind of a practice. Mm -hmm. you know, like chant, just even just chanting. Yeah. It's a heart and soul yeah. healing, harmonizing, deepening, and concentrating mm -hmm. practice. Yeah. So that was like a little transformation. For sure. That I could even see while I was in retreat, not afterwards. Uh -huh. Opening my feminine energy or receptivity or vulnerability and not just being an A alpha achieving male, finding a new goal now called enlightenment uh -huh. to drive towards instead of right. the goal line on a football field or a <laughs> rocket ship. Yeah, right. Climb the mountain, you know, all these kind uh -huh. of alpha achieving activities. And so there's a purification part too where you really chant your brains out and get the cobwebs out of your head and out of your lungs and, you know, you uh -huh. forget yourself and experience your true being, uh -huh. like your higher self. Uh -huh. Like in the Kirtan, by chanting for an hour, I felt like everybody was pretty much 
yeah. interbeing and forgot yeah. their our own re narrative or story or who was next to us or what we sounded like. Yeah. And that's transformative. Mm -hmm. So let's let's uh, let me ask you now. So you have this base, this this solid, not solid, but this deep foundation of practice. Stable is the word. Stable practice for many, many years. And then you, you, you were in retreat for many, many years in a row. And then you came out of retreat. How, how did that, how did, what was your experience of that, you know, what stayed with you in a sense as you became engaged with the outer world in a much more uh, intense way? Well, it was gradual. Um, it, first, it was a bit cult like culture shock, like the first time I came back from India, yeah. and I don't know, from my first India trip in 1972 or three, and I landed in Kennedy in New York, and I don't know, I might have even been with you, maybe my parents picked us up and yeah. took you to Long Island and me to their house in Long Island. And um, it was such a culture shock. Yeah. I mean, India is very noisy and chaotic and has buses and trains and planes yeah. and, you know all that but it was just such a culture shock yeah yeah there's a lot of things it didn't have in the 70s that like telephones televisions um uh, hygiene uh, yeah. and other things so it, it was a big culture shock and coming out of retreat was like that too it was like coming back into another world yeah right. in the tibetan tradition the lama training is a cloistered three-year three-month three-day retreat yeah. So our first one that I did with some Dharma friends under some great lamas, Kinsir Rinpoche and Dujur Rinpoche, et cetera, mm. and Yosho Kempo Rinpoche, then um, it took three months and eight, three years and eight months, not three months and three months, because we were waiting for Dingo Kinsir Rinpoche to come back from Nepal where he lived to uh -huh. teach the final teachings and open the gates. Uh -huh. So it was three, you know, three months to three months, eight months, what's the difference? But yeah, at that yeah. time you're already dead already. <laughs> When I went to the three-year retreat, I really sold everything. I, I mean, my, like my car, my guitar, you know? Yeah, like when I went to India. And didn't, I didn't really see the end of three and a half years. Like, what am I going to do later? Like, it was like dying, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like when you go to college, you don't really think about what you're going to do afterwards. Yeah. Even if you think you're going to be a doctor, you know, you're such a kid. You don't really think about, in four years, I'm going to, you know, yeah. go somewhere else. And I don't know. Yeah. It just seems so long to a kid, yeah. four years. Yeah. So I came out of the retreat, and we did it ritually and in a sacred way, slowly, and then went back in, and the next day we came out, and people were more integrated, and saw some of their friends or family, and a few people threw up when they first rode in a car and smelled gasoline. Because oh, wow. for three and a half years, we had not been with cars. We were in the woods in a cloistered retreat center with a courtyard yeah. out in yeah. the middle. And, and I realized I hadn't worn shoes in three years. I was wearing slippers or flip-flops or barefoot three and a half years. I hadn't touched money. Wow. So culture shock. Really? When you come out of retreat. And yeah. like, even at this level, you'll laugh. I didn't have, in the retreat, I didn't use a wallet and money or keys or, you know, the things you carry around yeah. in your pockets or in shoulder bags yeah, yeah. these days or briefcases. So we were wearing monks and nuns robes in, in the three and a half years and yeah. had shaved heads. So life was very simple and every day was the same, the um, mm. schedule. And um, I mean, we had pens and, and paper and stuff. There were no computers in that, that time, yeah. personal computers. And um, I remember within two or three days, I had a hard time figuring out where I, like, how do I keep track of all this stuff? Like <laughs> car keys? Wallet and, you know, mala. Yeah. Like, do I even have three pockets? <laughs> and I'm going to go out for a few hours. Where do I, how do I keep it? You know, it's like when you first start driving a car. Yeah. yeah. How do I move my feet and my hands and look in the rearview mirror and out the front window yeah. at the same time? Yeah, yeah. It seems like a hundred operations to do. Yeah. But once you learn to drive, you just do it all the time. And then you do other things too, right? Yeah. Like drink your cappuccino or listen to Krishna Das. Yeah, surf the yeah. radio, uh -huh. listening, looking for Krishna Das's <laughs> kirtan and things like that. So it was kind of like that. It was a culture shock, like coming wow. back from India, and especially I couldn't get used to. Um, 
I had been gone basically eight or 10 years in that retreat center with a little visit to the parents in the middle. A lot of things had changed. Like uh, I never saw a video store. Right. And all of a sudden there were all these video stores full of videos that were like, before it was a yeah. bookstore, now it's a video store. Yeah. We didn't have videos in the 1960s. There was real to real movies. Yeah. And uh, cars, they didn't have roll-up window things. I couldn't find the, the thing to roll down the window because <laughs> it was all recessed and like a button or yeah. automatic. Mm -hmm. yeah. But just multiply that by a little of everything. Yeah, sure. There were fax machines. I said, okay, so you can fax this like uh, letter or this, this uh, translation text. Yeah. Okay, but uh, what if I draw something? Can you fax that? Like, how, how, does, the, how does the picture go <laughs> that I'm drawing now, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but just multiplied. Yeah, boy. So it yeah. was a bit of a culture shock. But like everything else, you get used to it. Yeah. I remember when I first came back from India, I couldn't get used to the fact that people would say, um, I think I was in Woodstock, New York, trying to start a Tibetan monastery there. It's now Karmapa's monastery. People say, the regular bus to and from New York, you know, comes every morning up and goes every morning da down, and mm -hmm. then also at night or something, at a certain time, let's say 8 a.m., and I said, really? And they said, yeah, you, just if you're there at 8 a.m., you get on the bus and it, no stops to New York City. And I said, well, it's really cold out. What if they don't come for an hour? Because you know, I'd been in India. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. And they said, oh, the, the bus comes every day within a minute. <laughs> Otherwise, all the other stops and think the trains are screwed yeah, up. Yeah. I just couldn't conceive of it because I'd been away from it. But those are little things. And after a while, you just, yeah. you know, now you look online on your handheld yourself and you find out the whole plane schedule and you punch a few buttons and you get a ticket and you count on it being there yeah, yeah. and the money gets exchanged through paypal and we you know but yeah. in those days things were a little more tangible yeah so it took a while to get used to that after being in retreat and cloister for a long time but you can get used to anything yeah and people sure. do as people you know do. and well, you can train for it the hard things yeah. or you can train emotionally to be prepared for difficult things you know, like dealing with loss and grief or yeah. death or well, whatever you have to do. You can uh, train your body. Mm -hmm. um, I've I heard people are even training their eyes now so they don't have to wear glasses and, and so on uh -huh. with different visual and neuroscience uh, techniques, mm. low tech, not implants. Yeah. So training and practice, we call it practice. Practice. And then it gets easier. So when you were in retreat, your practice, you had a, there was a certain quality to your days and to your practice. Well, there was a whole schedule all day, yeah. an hour and two but hour sessions. You were like inside of that whole thing. Yeah. But once you come, when you take that out into the world, right. how, was, how did that change for you? How did that interface go? Well, th that's the challenge. The actual practice time. At first, though. it seems like hard to go to a retreat. But when you're in the retreat, yeah. and if you're into it, if it's the right thing for you, then it, you kind of don't want to leave. Yeah. It's like, what else do I want to do? Do I really want to go back to working to make a living to buy clothes and have a transportation to come to work every day? Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. like no, a retreat, everybody looked the same. Yeah. There was no big deal about the hair and the clothes. That was like a relief that nobody told me about to expect. I know. That's how I felt in India. You know, I didn't feel ugly or India, yeah. anything. It's just like everybody, yeah, like in India, everybody's yeah. covered up and you don't even look. Yeah. So it made it easier and simpler. Yeah, and less judgment and less grab, less grasping and and partiality. Yeah, and more welcoming whatever comes and letting it go. And also in retreat, you're theoretically you're not there to uh, uh, to follow your projections and grab onto them with yeah. other people. You know, well, you're there to observe and and let but go. But that's where you find out that you yeah. know. Just because you built a cloister or you're going to retreat even by yourself. Yeah. You know, somebody follows you in there, which is the main culprit in the whole scenario, which is your ego and your conditioning. Yeah. yeah. It's like, who brought this can of worms? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's my can. It's me. These are familiar worms. <laughs> I'm anxious here too, or yeah, greedy. Yeah. yeah. Or lazy. Yeah. So again, you know, reconditioning, doing practices to make better habits or loosen that and op awaken your mind and open your heart and mm -hmm. embody, be more yeah. embodied and different yeah. kinds of practices with body like bows and yoga, 
with mm-hmm. speech, you know, walking meditation, yeah. and with speech, mantra, and chanting, and, devo- and devotional chanting, yeah. and other kinds, and breathing exercises with the, that's part of speech in the throat yeah. chakra, and then with mind, heart, mind, with meditation and light and radiating and reabsorbing and mm-hmm. loving kindness and compassion and awareness and cutting through, seeing through. Mm-hmm. So you go through the pro- progress of the nine vehicles yeah. of Tibetan Buddhist practice. It must be wonderful to, I'm sure it is, to have to be in that kind of retreat where you're getting those teachings and you're getting, uh, there's a path laid out for you which you can yeah. you know, move into. You can surrender to, and then yeah. you know, when the bell rings, like Pavlov's dogs, you salivate. So yeah. when the gong rings, you meditate, and then when the gong rings, you get up and you go to the dining room, which was silent. Yeah. And sometimes people read to us, like Lectio Divina, yeah. the Christian monk call it, while we're eating. Otherwise, it's just silent because of the silent retreat, and we had our own monk's cell or room. But uh, yeah, some of the people, my friends, you know, it's friendly and... Yeah. I mean, the real battlefield is men's souls, women's souls, as Dostoevsky said. So you have your own room, you know, it's like there's no one to fight with about the side of the bed or, you know, the clicker and what <laughs> we're going to watch. But yeah. the real battlefield is the inner battlefield of yeah. the soul. So yeah. that's what you have to, you know, if you feel called to uh, work on. Yeah. So that's what you work yeah. on and you get to know yourself better. And you start to find out things like um, whether you let go or hold on, things pass. So you can relax your grip a little bit. You know, you can't hold on to anything forever. Yeah. Everything's impermanent. Yeah. So even the three years and three, eight months went by, and then I was out again, a pedestrian, mm. pounding the streets. So wow. I went and did another three-year retreat. <laughs> that was my solution to how to practice after a three-and-a-half-year retreat. You do it again. Yeah. A recidivist. Yeah, and then I heard you, you, did a, you started a third yeah, one as well. Yeah, we started a third one. Then it's holding this Dujum Rinpoche, the head of our Dzogchen lineage, a Nyingmapa school, Tibetan Buddhism, died there in his house there. So we got involved with taking care of him and his body relic and uh-huh. the prayers and pujas you know, the Islamas yeah. did. And then after a year, took his body to be interred in a stupa, uh-huh. in a memorial monument, the stupa in Nepal at his monastery uh-huh. there. Do you remember he left his body in France? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, and he sat up for a few days in meditation, and uh, mm-hmm. we saw him in that state, which is rare. Wow. And it was like a rainbow, I, I, I seemed. I mean, I could see him, but it was more like a... a so you, you had a lot of time with him. You spent yeah. a lot of time with him. Wonderful. Those are... But for most people, the question is not just how do you come out of a retreat, but like you have your yoga class or your meditation class or your Sunday prayer or Bible study, whatever, your formal practice. Or in like in the best case, every morning or evening you have some formal spiritual exercise or practice that you do. And then when you get up off the cushion or the chair or your yoga mat, you know, then what? How do you carry this and integrate it into daily life yeah. where there are other people and there is talking and there is competition and there is arguing and mm-hmm. maybe you have a job to do. Uh, maybe there's um, disturbance in the field yeah. that you're in, in the family or in the workplace or in mm-hmm. the city or in, in the continent and the world. Mm-hmm. So that's where practice really helps. What you've, quote, integrated or internalized mm-hmm. in your, quote, inner life mm-hmm. You might lose your concentration, but the insights or the the the, the, the experience, the wisdom side remains mm. as you go out into life. Mm-hmm. So it helps you be more patient and accepting yeah. of what happens, you know, at the office, and yeah, you, yeah. you don't suffer so much from thinking from thinking way too much. It should be the way I think it should be. Yeah, yeah. Well. When you realize, oh, guess what? I'm not in control of the world, and I'm not God, and you know, being a control freak is not in my higher self-interest yeah. or any my family's or friends' either self-interest. Yeah. So you more flow with things and dance mm. with life instead mm. of being so hard-headed and hard-nosed yeah. and come from the heart as well as, you know, use your head and keep your feet on the ground and your head in heaven or in the air, as they say. Right. Not up your butt. 
yeah. and not hide out in the spiritual practice, like yeah. avoidance behavior. What you said, that was a beautiful line, what you said, you might lose your concentration, but the wisdom or the insights you've got, they still uh, kind of unravel the knots yeah. that you come across. Right. That's very beautiful because people, I think a lot of people make the mistake of trying to hold on to the that, that momentary experience of yeah. concentration right. or calmness of the mind, and they think if they're not experiencing that, they haven't. They've lost it. Right. But it's not. It, it's more. It, it's more of a flow. Flow and dancing with life and different gears. I think is a good metaphor. Mm. Um, in in Tibetan Buddhist meditation songs and texts, it says uh, something like, "In meditation, we emphasize meaning like in formal yeah. sitting." But it doesn't have to be sitting. But in formal meditation, mm -hmm. let's say sitting, we emphasize the empty or intangible, ungraspable nature of things, letting things come and go just in the field of awareness. Mm -hmm. So that's like the emptiness or the subjective side. And then in, in life, in post-meditation, we emphasize karma and cause and, connect, and, con cause and effect uh -huh. so that we have our hands on the steering wheel and right. we have some choice with attention and intention. Mm -hmm. right. So in meditation, seeing through things, in post-meditation, seeing how things work, so you act, react differently to red and green if it, it's a light system. Yeah. In meditation, if you see red, yellow, or green, you don't react differently because you're seeing through it as mere imagination. But right. in post-meditation, you, you know, this is a driving car metaphor. Yeah. You right. react differently based on karma, cause and effect in the relative situational, world. situational, awareness. yeah. And you try to cultivate mm -hmm. positive qualities. While in the meditation, you might be more just letting everything go, not praying for peace in the world. Yeah, that would be more like for others or mm -hmm. post, you know, after meditation yeah. or at the end of your meditation. Mm -hmm. So balancing being in meditation with doing in the world and carrying that awareness with you but not being so concentrated when you are multitasking at work, for example. Mm -hmm. And you have to multitask. Even to drive a car, you have to multitask. You yeah. say, I'm not doing anything but driving, but you're doing multitasking yeah. when you're driving. So in that way, you, you balance heaven and earth or the absolute and the relative by seeing through things, but also being able to see what they are and how it works, mm -hmm. the karma. Mm -hmm cause and effect, what right. goes around comes around. Yeah. If you make new habits, you get new results. If you have unhealthy habits, you, guess what? You become unhealthy. Yeah. There's no one to blame. Right. And that's a basic principle, I think, of Eastern thought, or Buddhism at least. There's no one to blame except a selfish, egotistic clinging or ignorance. Mm -hmm. Like Buddha said, no one can make me angry unless yeah. I have the seeds of anger in myself and I react that way. Yeah. Like, they can push your buttons, but it doesn't mean you have to be wired to the amygdala yeah. response of anger, yeah. fight or flight. You can be wired for They can push your buttons, and you can laugh yeah. like you're being tickled. Yeah. <laughs> I know this is I idealistic, but that's the idea. Yeah. It's not what happens to us, but what we make of it that makes all the difference. Exactly. That's a very important principle of self-mastery and, and freedom. And, and it's the time that we put in and practice, you could say, that that carries over into the way we react and, and live through in our lives, right. how we inhabit our lives. Yeah. Like it, it's, not like, it's not like you push a button in practice and then everything changes in life, but it's the time that you spend in practice that gradually changes the quality of your life, yeah. how, you, how you live in it. The way I feel it is like um, if I meditate every, in the morning as I do, then it informs the rest of the day. Right. And then whenever I see water, I naturally meditate, or sky, or nature, or a child, or, or you know, it just becomes more uh, mm -hmm. integrated into everything. Yeah. So it's like natural yeah. awakefulness yeah. rather than trying to meditate. Right. You know, sit cross-legged on your desk at work. Right. No, right. not. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. be aware when the anger rises, when you're driving a car and somebody cuts you off, so you naturally practice mindful anger management. Mm -hmm. You think before you react. Yeah. You're mindful of the anger coming up and you don't... Yeah, that would be good. Hunk, flip the bird and jam your foot on the accelerator and ram them. Yeah, 
So anger is just an energy, but it doesn't evolve into violence yet. Yeah. So how we respond makes a big difference. That's where mindful awareness can and free us. Yeah. Or, or just uh, being grateful. You know, if you're in a theistic tradition, mm -hmm. like uh, mystics have always said, you say thank you for everything. Yeah. Not pick and choose like you know better than God yeah. what should be coming. Gratitude is the heart of prayer, Brother David Steinbeuer says. Yeah. And I love that. I think we could all use to be a little more grateful, especially in the first world where we take, and America, yeah. you know, is our subject generally. We take so much for granted and we worry and complain about such little things when, you know, half of the world, a third of the world goes to bed hungry at night and the other third has unbelievable infant mortality rates or oppression and inequality yeah. of various kinds. And we're complaining, you know, if Trader Joe's doesn't always have the same stuff every week. And we have to go across the street to Whole Foods because they always have the same stuff every week. Yeah. That's like a real first world problem. Yeah. My therapist friends call it, some of them have real intense practices with people who have, you know, big pathological problems. Mm. But some of them they like, especially as they get older, some of them, they want to take it easier. They have uh, practices of the easy people, like uh, they call them the uh, worried well. The worried well. The worried well who come to therapy to tell them about <laughs> their problems. Like they don't want to be a doctor anymore because the HMOs are making them crazy with billing. Yeah. They're going to go to, I don't know, music school or law school yeah. at age 50. That's the first world problem of the That's worried well. First world problem, yeah. So I've been saying thank you a lot, and mm -hmm. especially since I just lost my wife, and I'm realizing also how much I have, and you know she doesn't feel gone. Yeah. And I think practice and my spiritual path and gurus' blessings over the decades yeah. has made a big difference about how that sits with me, mm -hmm. and how taking care of her for a year or two while she was succumbing to lung cancer and didn't yeah. want to go to the hospital or hospice yeah. sits with me. And um, how it made us feel closer and closer in the spirit. Yeah. And death pairs away a lot. Yeah. Almost everything you get down to really what matters, what the most basic yeah. things, uh, which is like who you spend your time with and how, not what's in the bank or your reputation mm -hmm. or what you have parked in the parking lot. Yeah. But, you know, how we are together. Yeah. So that's been very interesting about day by day and hour by hour, minute by minute for me. Yeah. Without making plans while she's been uh, deteriorating. Yeah. And getting treatments, which sometimes seem worse than the disease and going through all that. And it's heartbreaking. And I wish I could have helped her more and eased her path more. But I also have to accept that. You know, that's yeah. a balance of... You, you do all you can and you let go and whatever happens, happens. You do the best you can thoroughly and you have let go and whatever happens, happens. I, I think recognizing the effect we might have had on other people is above our pay grade. Yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we just do the best we can. Yeah. And, and there are other factors. We leave the rest of it. You know, we just do the best we can. You yeah. can't worry about it. You never know the effect that right. w one person has on another person, what, what it means to them from the inside. We can only see it from the outside. Also, especially if we're in the helping professions or have bodhisattva vow or you try to be an altruistic, compassionate, you know, an action yeah. service-oriented person, a seva, karma yoga, social conscience, it's easy to fall into a feeling of indispensability, like they yeah. really need me and I can't, I don't have time to take care of myself. You know how many healthcare people and service yeah. oriented people burn out yeah. and are weak on self care. <laughs> it's all about other care. Yeah, yeah. So it gets out of balance. Yeah. So nobody's indispensable. Yeah. And um, I don't, you, you know, I'm glad that I could be there with Debbie and I planned to be there when she died and, and I was, mm -hmm. so that I'm grateful. Yeah. But if I hadn't been, not the end of the world. She yeah. would have died, and I would have been there in an hour or two or three. Yeah. And no one's indispensable. Yeah. I mean, l rather than say no one's indispensable, you could say we're all interchangeable. 
Okay. You know, it's like, you know, it's either you or somebody else will be there. Well, you know? I'm Jeff I mean, and you're Jeff, so. Yeah, we're indispensable, we're indispensable. obviously. What would you and say? Interchangeable. <laughs> Non-refundable. Non-refundable, but, but yeah. It has, we have a lifetime guarantee, that much I'll say. Yeah, I'll say I, I know. Lifetime warranty. You can return <laughs> us at any time. <laughs> full, full refund. But I thank God every day for the non-theistic uh, Buddha Dharma, and really just for the Dharma, otherwise I'd probably be dead. Yeah. For my 60s yeah. habits. Well, even with the little practice that I've done, you know, uh, well, I told you this yesterday, but when I hurt my knee in India very badly, I could barely walk, and I was sitting in front of Maharaji, and I was just thinking, what is this? You know, why did this happen? What could this be? What kind of bad karma is, you know, my mind was spinning out. So he reached over and he grabbed the Bible out of this girl's, out of Girijah's uh, jola, uh, shoulder bag. He grabbed it and he opened it up and he pointed to this, read this. This is in Hindi because he just supposedly yeah. didn't speak or right. read English, right? Open this up, read this. So I opened it up and I read it out and it was from St. John, uh, St. Paul, Corinthians. And it said, uh, in order to uh, save me uh, from the this egoism about the abundance of revelations that had been given to me, it was given to me a thorn in the side. And I asked the Lord three times to, to take it from me. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in your helplessness, in your weakness. So that's... That's profound. And you know, this is what Maharaji said. He, he, the message he gave me was that in the surrender to the higher power or the deeper place within us, that's where that power, you know, is manifests itself in our surrender, in our recognition of it's not about me. I, what can I do? I just do the best I can to stay in the right place in my heart. Whatever happens, happens. It's not my story. It's not my responsibility. I do the best I can. But that, the strength of the grace is made manifest in our surrender, in our understanding there's very little we can really do except to remember God, except to live in that place as best we can. Well, this whole um, dis discussion and question that many of us have, you know, how about how to balance surrender with intention? How to balance surrender with intention, for example, or effort, and what's mm -hmm. right effort or balanced effort? And it's I a, once said challenge. This, I once said to Siddhima, you know, one time Maharaji said, he said, uh, I hold the keys to the mind, he said. And then he teased us and said, I can turn your minds against me. No, Baba, don't do that. <laughs> ah, and he laughed, you know. So I said to Siddhima, I said, Ma, Maharaji says he holds the keys to the mind, which means to me that I am exactly where he wants me to be at all times. Otherwise, I'd be somewhere else, mentally, I mean, mm -hmm. like spiritually, uh, internally. My experience would be different. So I'm where he wants me to be. So what's this? where does personal effort come in? Is it all grace or is it personal effort? She says, it's all grace, but you have to act like it isn't. Excellent. <laughs> Which is very interesting. Yeah. You know? Don't well, take it entirely seriously. Yeah. That's so, beautiful. And, and it's the, all grace, but you have to act like it isn't and do what yeah. seems to be needed. But that doesn't mean that you're, that you're required to have ang mm -hmm. anxiety right. or aggressiveness or all those things yeah. about the outcome. You just act like it isn't, which means you, if, you're, if you're in the rain and you want to drink, you cup your hands. Right. It's not about anxiety or worry. Mm -hmm. It's simply that you do the best you can. You do what you do as fully as you can. But like Krishna says in the Gita, you do what you do, but you offer the fruits of your actions to me. In other words, we do what we do. Like you do your best you can with Debbie, but... Ultimately, it's up to him what her experience is. You may never know what her experience was, but still you were a part of that as best you could have been. And no, uh, I, I may, it's easy to say I may never know, but since we're alone here, and I know what I say here, we'll stay here, 
Uh, I am finding out, I'm getting messages from Debbie after this year's gone. And you know me, Krishna, I rarely, if ever, <laughs> unlike something, tell miracle stories. Yeah, or, yeah right? Yeah. I'm more like a joke, tell jokes yeah. than miracle stories. Right. But anyway, uh, two days after Debbie passed, I got a text from her from her phone. Wow. I was in her room, our room, lying in bed, pretending to hold her. I do it once a day, and I keep the candle on on her altar for the 49-day bardo rituals of our tradition. So I was lying there, and my phone beeped with the um, little signal for a text, so I ignored it. And it beeped again, then it beeped again, so I finally I decided, well, maybe something's going on, I'll check. And it was a message from Debbie, and it said, we will soon again be together. And it didn't finish the word, and there was no period. Wow. That's the message I got two and a half days later. There's an explanation, but let me just take that in. Yeah. I was in our bed and lying the way we were when she died and holding her in my mind. And mm. I get this message on my cell phone. Wow. So being a hyper-rational guy, I figured there must be an explanation. It's like, how did this just come now? And I call my niece, Julia, where's Debbie's cell phone? And Julia <laughs> says, I have it. I just sent the message. Aunt Debbie left it. You know, she must have forgot to send it. Uh, it was sitting, it was the last text she, she was sending sent to the you. night before. She, you know, she, so she didn't even finish the sentence. I don't know if she fell asleep or what. Yeah, yeah. I love you. We'll soon again be together. So two and a half days later, I get this, this I, I could show it to you on my uh, yeah. phone and with the date and all yeah. from Debbie's phone, from Debbie yeah. Crow's. Yeah, so yeah. that's kind of uh, something, you know, you don't usually get a message from the beyond, <laughs> even with an explanation like that. Yeah. So then being, I don't know, somehow I'm like Forrest Gump of the Dharma. I was always there by luck where things are happening. So it happens that Debbie's sister-in-law is a Mongolian Buddhist immigrant who grew up in New Jersey. Oh, wow. You know, like there were Tibetan immigrants yeah, sure. from the Chinese invasion of Tibet. Yeah. There were Mongolian Buddhists who were Tibetan Buddhists. Mongolian Buddhist immigrants in America also, and a lot of them live in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Dalai Lama always goes there, southern New Jersey, huh. Washington, New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's llamas there. there. A lot of them are in the construction trade. There's probably 500 Mongolian huh. Buddhists there. So Debbie's sister-in-law is this niece's mother that I was telling you about. Yeah, oh, I do. Yeah. So she's half Buddha, uh, Mongolian. So they're uh -huh. Buddhist. They're more Buddhist than us. Yeah. You know, like the mother wears a gold prayer wheel around her neck that her grandmother gave her 60 or 70 years ago. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> I have like a one rupee mala on my wrist. That's my yeah. Buddhism. Yeah. So anyway, so a couple of days after Debbie's uh, gone, I go over to my brother-in-law's house to watch the Super Bowl because life must go on. Life must go on. The Super Bowl must go so on. So we go to the Super Bowl with my buddies and, you know, we watch every year. And we're in the basement in the man cave and there's a few, you know, wives and kids you know, around. And um, my sister-in-law, this Mongolian Buddhist from New Jersey, pulls me aside and into the living room for a moment. So I went to, it's like, what's wrong or what's happening? What does she have to tell me? Well, she wants something from Debbie's house. Yeah, I don't know. And she says, Surya, I saw Debbie. <laughs> so I said, oh. <laughs> and she, she says, yes, she had long, beautiful blonde hair. You know, Debbie lost a lot of her hair in chemo, and, and then she uh -huh. made her hair pink or blue. Yeah. She has long, beautiful blonde hair, and she's happy, and she was very well and, and, and pretty. And she's really well. So then I, I felt like I had to say something. So I said, where is she? Where did you see her? Uh -huh. Also, I want to hear her say, like, I saw her in a dream. Uh -huh. I saw her in a vision. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I saw her in the heaven or the next life. Yeah, yeah. Or I'm just making you up. My bad. Ha ha. <laughs> Which she would do. So she said, oh, no, it's just Debbie's, you know, moving on. And, and she said, it seemed kind of natural to me that the first thing Debbie would do when she got to a new place would be get a new hairdo. hairdo. <laughs> <laughs> so in her world, it's all mixed together. Yeah, you know? yeah, well. Like Debbie would definitely do that if we moved to a new, you know, yeah. coast. 
So in my sister-in-law's mind, that's the way it was working. And like, you know, archetypally, she's having an experience of yeah. Debbie's in a good place and looking good and has redone her hair and is, is yeah. happy. So we were happy. Fantastic. I don't know, how, you know, we can interpret it any way we want. I'm just telling you what happened. So she's telling me this. Yeah. She also famously told Debbie 20 or 30 years ago when Debbie's mother died, Rose Crows of Long Island mm -hmm. of cancer. The same sister-in-law who was 20, 30 years younger, after a few days, again, Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist, you yeah. know, from Mongolia. It's a little yeah, different yeah. than us meditator Buddhists, convert Buddhists, or whatever we are, you know, convert yogis. The sister-in-law called Debbie. Debbie uh, it wasn't that into Buddhism. She did MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and meditated with me sometimes, but mm -hmm. she's not an Asia-file like us. Right. And... Uh, She's a craftsperson and a manager of charities and things, uh -huh. business. Um, Lish, this Mongolian sister, called Debbie and said, Debbie, I had a dream about your mother. And Debbie's going, oh, you know, it's like, what do you say? And Lish, Lishma, it's a Mongolian name, Lish says, she was reborn as a spider. And she says it like excitedly. And his Jewish Debbie from Long Island, you know, thinking, you know, what the heck? Why is she telling me this? This doesn't sound good. And, and Lish says, no, it's good. It's good. Because she's already like gone through the bardo and her, it's not like hanging around like a ghost. And spiders are very short lived. And then she'll be reborn again in a better way. And Debbie's like listening. He goes, oh, well, thank you very much for the news. <laughs> See you soon. <laughs> so, yeah. one thing I've learned, you know, is that everything is subjective. That's one of the meanings of the great Buddhist doctrine of emptiness. Yeah. Things are not what they seem to be, nor are they otherwise. Mm. You can't say what it is with absolute assertion. You can say whatever you want tentatively. Yeah. But it's not the things are now, it's not just a dream. It's like not even that. You know, that's too reifying. It's really a mystery, and wonderment, I think, is the appropriate response or the moment-to-moment -moment awareness of like wonder and freshness and what, you know, inquiry or openness mm. is like an appropriate response. Mm. Not remembering all the things I studied yeah. or heard or read or, you know. You yeah. So that brings it down to the joy of now and yeah. kind of the joy of me meditation or like a, a buoyant spiritual outlook or something, regardless of what I'm doing, mm. including taking care of my deteriorating wife, who I love so much mm. and so wonderful and so generous and helpful to everybody, or trying to do something in the world in these really fractured and you know contentious times and everybody seems so divided. Yeah trying to awaken together or even just help a little bit somewhere and mentor the young kids or resist the um, selfish narcissists in politics or, you know, wherever yeah. you can. Yeah. And there's joy in that. And then whatever happens, happens. Yeah. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh is probably dying now. Uh, I think he's on the cover of Time magazine, I heard, or somewhere for being the father of mindfulness in the West. Uh -huh. The Vietnam master Thich Nhat Hanh is on his last legs. Yeah. You know, he's, been, he's very old. But he was fighting, he was, he was peace marching against the Vietnam War in Vietnam in the 70s wow. and 60s. Yeah. And he's still doing it. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, a bodhisattva life. You don't give up just because there's no peace yet. Yeah. He was Vietnamese and he, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King uh -huh. around that time. Wow. And he's still peace marching 60 years <laughs> later. So I think that's what I think that's our calling is uh, yeah. be peacemakers and lights in the world. Yeah. Not a blight on the landscape. And I think that's about awakening together, not just self-development, self-help and selfishness. Yeah. As you know. Beautiful. So our guru, Nimkroli Maharaj, always used to say, you know, what, what did you say? Feed them, love them, and serve them. Yeah, love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. God. So love and serve. Love, serve, remember. Not just yeah. Try to calm your mind and relax and get your 
Not blood pressure yeah. down. That's like daily mental floss, but there's more to life than that. Yeah. Well, mental hygiene in the morning is good, but there's the other 23 hours to consider. Yeah. And how, you know, relational mindfulness and love and loving kindness in action, mm -hmm. not just in the abstract. Yeah. You know, prayer and action. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we call the Bodhisattva way or the way of the altruistic, peaceful warrior. Yeah. Bodhisattva. Wonderful. The Buddha's to be. And seeing the Buddha and the light and everyone and everything. Even oneself. Yeah. Ain't easy sometimes. Beautiful. Thank you so much. It's wonderful sitting with you and You're talking. Welcome, KD. Amen. My beloved brother. Amen. Oh, 
Thank you so much for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Kirtan Mala Foundation. Krishnadas is renowned for leading Kirtan, the spiritual practice of chanting, and workshops around the world. For more information about him, including upcoming events, please visit krishnadas.com. K-R-I-S-H-N-A-D-A-S.com. We also invite you to visit kirtanwalafoundation.org. K-I-R-T-A-N-W-A-L-L-A-H foundation.org. Here you will find more offerings dedicated to spreading the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba. Love everyone, serve everyone. Remember God. Ram Ram.